Father, I am, um, I'm sick of sin, Lord. Um, I'm sick of my, my sin, my sin that even now, as your child, still keeps me um, from you. My sin that I allow um, to prevent the, the time in your word that I should spend, the time in prayer with you that I should spend, the time serving you ultimately, Lord, that, that I should. Um, the many distractions in my life, Father, that I allow um, to, pull, to pull me away from you. Lord, I'm, I'm tired of it. Um, Father, I'm sure that we are, we are tired of it. And I do, Lord, look for and long for the day when, when not just my sin is no more, but when sin is no more. But until, until that day, Lord, I ask that you would um, continue your sanctifying work in, in my life, that you would continue your sanctifying work in the life of this church, that, that moment by moment, however much time you give us, moment by moment, Lord, that we would, um, Jesus, cling to you ever so tightly, and in, and in doing so, we would continue we would continue to forsake our sin. We would to continue to turn from the things of this world, the, the loves of this world, the desires of this world, and that our love for you, Jesus, would grow more and more. And in that, Lord, we would become more and more like you. I know that's for our good, and I want that, but even more than that, Father, I know that it glorifies you. And so I pray that you would continue, Lord, to glorify yourself as you sanctify your church. And that, Father, I also pray that you would continue to save many. You would continue to grant repentance and faith. You continue to save for your glory, for the sake of Christ's name, that you would continue to do that, but also for the good of all those whom you would save. Father, this morning as we begin this study, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. We know that you will, confident that you will be faithful to your promises to do so, and yet I desire it, yet we desire it. And so in that, Father, I ask that you would continue to do that, knowing that you will, but coming from a heart that just so desires to see your promises fulfilled. Again, Lord, thank you for this time that you have given us, for this this place to gather together and, and to worship you now as we hear your word proclaimed. Jesus, I ask these things this morning. I pray these things um, in your name, for your name's sake, that you might receive all the glory and all the honor. Amen. Well, this morning we begin something new, something new for me at least. And because it's new for me, it's going to be new for you. Not that, that you've never heard a, 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 a sermon, right, from the Old Testament. We have, right? Randy went through Jonah before being here in Mark. And so we've, we've, we've gone through a series in the Old Testament. However, I've never preached a series from the Old Testament. So, so this is new for me. 
And so, and that it's new for me, it's new for you because you're hearing it from me, God through me, I pray. Um, And so this morning we begin that. Now it's probably going to be no surprise to you that over the next several months, however, however much time God allows us to, to, to take to go through this Old Testament book, it's probably no surprise to you that we are, I am, we are going to begin the book of Ruth today. It is, as I've probably mentioned on numerous occasions, um, probably my favorite, one of my favorite. I think I would say that, though, about every Old Testament text as we, we approach it. It's like my favorite. And then I get to the next one and say, it's like, it's like my favorite. Like my kids, like each one of my children are my favorite. Like, like you know, you're my favorite, son. You're, no, you're my favorite, son. Oh, oh, daughter, you're my favorite. So I think I actually feel that way probably about every uh, a book in the Old Testament, probably every book in Scripture, that they're all my favorite, okay? So Ruth is my favorite. Um, and so, so we're going to begin that today. Now, today's going to be a little bit different. Um, We are going to be looking at the first um, five verses in Ruth, but today is going to be different and then it's going to be more like a a history lesson probably than it is uh, a sermon. And again, part of this is probably me trying to figure out this whole expository preaching through Old Testament narrative, which again is, is new ground for me. But today, being the, the very first in this, this series, right, it is important that we consider some of the historical and background information of, of this book. And, and as we do that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try, and it's hard for me to do, not to go too far ahead. I don't want to give you a summary, so I'm not going to give you a summary per se of Ruth this morning, okay? But what I want to do as we, as we approach these first five verses, I want to use those first five verses to give us some historical background information as far as what's going on. That way, as we progress through the entirety of this book over the next several months, right, we'll have this knowledge base behind us, which, which I believe will help us understand, you know, um, the, the, the text, okay? Um, now, the story of Ruth is one that begins with sorrow through loss, and yet it ends with supreme joy through redemption. It's a story that clearly depicts God's providence and his sovereignty. And we're going to see his providence and how he takes care of this, this family physically. How he takes care of them spiritually. How he provides for him. But we're also going to see his providence and how he orchestrates completely, okay, and works through completely the lives of these individuals within this story. And as we, as we go through this story, I am, I am convinced that, well, it's the word of God, so that is probably what convinces me, but I am convinced that no one could write, no one could have come up with a better story than the story that we see in Ruth, because ultimately it's God's story. And so as we go through this story, we're going to see his sovereignty in their lives, working through their lives, ultimately to redeem them, and not just to redeem them physically out of this sorrow, but ultimately to redeem them spiritually. 
If you would, turn with me now to Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. And again, I'm going to allow these five verses to direct me concerning the historical, somewhat contextual information that that we're going to consider this morning. I'm going to read 1 through 5 to begin. It says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Now, concerning the dating of this story, when did it happen? Well, in first one, we see that it happened what? In the days when the judges governed. Now, the period of the judges, and if you recall, I know we covered some of this over the past several months as we've been going through Christ in the Old Testament in our, in our study or Sunday school class time. But if you recall, the period of the judges began with the death of Joshua and ended with the anointing of Israel's first king. Now, we're not going to turn there. Now, I am. This is going to be a little bit different, too, because we're going to have several scripture verses that we actually turn to and look at. And then there's going to be others that I just kind of throw out as, as references as I explain what's going on. But if you recall, Joshua's death um, is, is given to us or recounted to us in Judges uh, chapter 2, verses 6. And his death occurred approximately around 1380 B.C., And then King Saul, the first king of Israel, right, was anointed in approximately 1020 B.C. And that's recounted in um, 1 Samuel chapter 10. And so that gives us an approximate time period of 350 years. Okay, So this this period of the judges is, is a period of about 350 years, give or take, depending on dating. So the story of Ruth, the actual events of this narrative occur within this 350-year period of the judges. And if you recall from when we looked at the judges briefly several months back, this, this period was the darkest of times in Israel's history. It was spiritually dark. And if you recall, we talked about this, this cycle of sin that was going on within, within Israel. And we saw this cycle of sin, and Israel would, would sin, right? And then as a result of their sin, God would, would punish them. God would discipline, I'll say this, God would punish and discipline, right? Those who are his, he disciplines, right? Those who are not his are punished, right? So in this, this period, the Israel, national Israel would, would sin, right? And then God would discipline and punish, and he would often do it through servitude to other nations. And then national Israel would repent, and then God would save them by raising up a judge, right? And this is where we get the, the name judges, right? Raising up a judge. These judges weren't like, again, judges like what we have today, you know, gavel, bang, bang, right? They were, they were uh, uh, rescuers, 
if you would. There were men and women that, that rose up out of Israel to redeem them from this, this servitude that God had punished or disciplined them with. Okay. And so this cycle, the sin, servitude, uh, uh, the supplication and salvation is what I had I'd written down. Right? The cycle that Israel was going through um, in the period of the judges, it happened over and over and over and over again with the various judges that we saw throughout this, this 350-year period. Now, I want you to understand that, that Israel, again, national Israel, during this um, time period of the judges, was was very much lost. I, I would I would dare say national Israel was very much pagan throughout this time period. Um, judges now now turn with me to Judges twenty one twenty five really summarizes national Israel during this this time frame. Twenty one. Judges 21, 25 says, In those days, this is the period of the judges, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, if you study through the judges, there are numerous uh, scripture references in Judges that says, And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then as the text continues throughout the judges, we see that, that all that they were doing was, was sin, was, was wrong. Now, I said moments ago that, that national Israel during this time frame was, was very much pagan, and, and they were, okay? Again, national Israel. Again, I'm just throwing them all into one group here initially, right? Um, the worship of the Canaanite god Baal um, was common among the Israelites during this, this period. And we're going to look at several references to Israel's, national Israel's pagan worship during this time frame. We'll start in Judges 2. And I'm just going to roll through Judges here. Several different references. Judges 2 verse 11. Judges 2.11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord. The God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And followed what? And followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. Judges 3.7. Again says the sons of Israel did what? What was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. We'll look at Judges 8. 33. Judges 8.33. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal berith their god. This, this is happening in this time frame of Ruth. Again, we see this, this history of Israel chronologically as we're going through Judges, right? They're consistently worshiping these false gods. And then we'll look at Judges 10.6. And Judges 10.6 again says, Then the sons of Israel again did, I want to stop right there. 
we, we, we read moments ago at the end of Judges 21-25, right? It says Israel did, was right in their own, uh, uh, did what was right in their own eyes, okay? And here we're seeing that, right? What was right in their own eyes? What was right in their own eyes was worshiping false gods. So again, Judges 10-6 says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil. It was right in their own eyes, but it was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. National Israel during this period of the judges was pagan. Now, their God, their, their main God, if you will, Israel's main God that they worshipped during this time frame was Baal. And they believed that he ruled the land they controlled and that he controlled its fertility. And he did this along with his female goddess, Asheroth. And we, we read that mentioned in, in a couple verses there, okay? And what, what they believed was that Baal and Asheroth would in fact regulate the fertility of the land would in fact regulate the the success, if you will, the vitality of the life of its inhabitants. They believed that these this this god and this this goddess did this through sexual activity. In fact, so much so that the sons of Israel, as as they're proclaiming here, would in fact participate within these 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 sexual pagan rituals that would supposedly help bring vitality and fertility to the land as well as to the people. Now, within this godless pagan nation, and and that's what it was, even though they proclaimed in one way the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of that, right? Even though they proclaimed it in one sense that we were his people, nonetheless, it was a godless pagan nation. Yet yet within this, this nation, there was a remnant. There was a, a small group, if you will, of true believers who worshipped the true God. Who worshipped the true God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and remained faithful to him. Now, we see it if, if we went through Judges we would see pockets of this remnant. Some of the judges were a part of this remnant. Not all of them were, were good judges, okay, um, in, in, in a certain sense. But we, we see it in there, right? Um, we're going to see it within specifically the story of Ruth, okay? The, the individuals that this story um, uh, uh, tells of, Naomi and Ruth and um, Elimelech and, and Boaz, okay? This is a story of the remnant of Israel's. The story deals with true believers, right? A believing family um, during this, this dark period um, in Israel's history. Now, I, I want to say this just per, uh, briefly as I was thinking about this period of the judges, okay? I think sometimes, like, we try to relate, like, in America, right? Well, we were this Christian nation, right? Israel, at one point, was this great nation, you know? We had, had uh, Joshua as their leader, and then Joshua died, and then it fell from, you know, being this nation of God into this horrible pagan nation, and, and there was a remnant. And that's like us today in America, okay? Now, I know we feel like that at times, right? We look around us, and, and we see the wickedness 
around us, and we think to ourselves, well, well, now we know how the remnant in Israel felt, right? But I'm going to tell you, in America, we have no clue how the remnant um, of believers living in Israel during this period of the judges felt. In fact, the, 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 the darkness in this country, I believe, pales in comparison to how spiritually dark Israel was during this time. Now, that being said, I believe that, that there are believers in some other countries within the world today, right? Some horrible, wretched, pagan countries where Buddhism and Hinduism and other isms are extremely prevalent. Pagan worship is extremely prevalent. And within those countries, there are are very small pockets of believers. I think they can relate to the spiritual darkness overall that the country was in. I think they can relate more than that than what we can. And, And I say this to bring out this point. We think it's spiritually dark in our land. And folks, it It is absolutely it is, okay? But the spiritual darkness that was over Israel at this time, the the spiritual oppression, if you will, that the remnant felt during this time is immensely greater than than what we feel at this time. And I say that because I hope it brings out some perspective about how Naomi and, and Ruth and Boaz, and even the brief mention of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, I hope that brings out perspective on how they felt compared to how we feel even here today in our country. That is godless, right? Not that there aren't believers, but, but it is overall. National America is godless, right? It pales in comparison to Israel during this time frame. Now, said that the, the time frame, the dating of Ruth occurred during this period, but it's a pretty broad period. I mean, 350 years. So we're going to narrow that down into specific dating. The specific dating for Ruth, we kind of extract from Ruth chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. It says, The neighbor women gave him a name. Actually, I'll start in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child... And laid him in her lap and became his nurse. This is a, a child that Ruth would eventually have with Boaz. Um, it says, the neighbor women give him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David, as in King David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse, David. So we see that Ruth was three generations before David, lived three generations before David. Ruth, in fact, is David's great-grandmother. This places the approximate time for the events of Ruth to the mid-late 12th century B.C., approximately 1150. Okay? We know when King David, King David was, was anointed king in the early 10th century. Okay? So like 9, I think it's 990, 980, somewhere in there. Some of you might have a better idea than that. Okay? But we can date that back three generations. Okay? And we know 
that, um, that this story would have then taken place approximately, let's say, 1150, 1120, somewhere in that time frame B.C. That, in fact, actually the, the, the later time frame, 1150, puts it within the judge of Gideon. So, again, we're just kind of connecting the dots, trying to get an idea of when this story historically actually took place. Now, concerning the authorship, who wrote it? Well, we know it's God's story, right? Um, no man could write a better story than what God wrote here in Ruth, right? But we know that God had to have used a, a human author to write this story down. And the answer is we don't know. However, though we don't know, it doesn't, doesn't identify in the text who, who, who wrote this story down, it is believed, and I think, I think it's probably fairly accurate, right, that... Um, that Samuel um, wrote this story down. Right? Jewish history, uh, uh, not only just Christian historians and theologians now attribute it to, to, to Samuel, but even Jewish scholars and tradition attributes uh, this writing of the story down to the prophet Samuel. And again, Samuel was the prophet who anointed Israel's first king. He's the prophet who anointed King David, but he was also, and I think it's overlooked, he's also the last judge of um, Israel. Now, concerning our belief, and I do believe that Samuel is the one who, who wrote this story down, concerning that belief that Samuel is the one who wrote it down, we'll connect that to the date of writing because we know when Samuel lived, right? Samuel didn't live during the time frame that this story actually occurred, right? He lived three generations later, within the time frame of King David. Now, based on David's mention at the end of this book, right? It goes through the lineage, right? Um, Obed, Jesse, David, okay? Based on his mention at the end of this book and no mentions of any generations below David, right? It doesn't say Solomon. It stops with David. Based on that, um, my belief, right? I think the general consensus is that this story was written down within the reign of King David. Now, that's important in connecting the human authorship, right, who, who penned it and put it on paper, to Samuel. And the reason that's important is they believe, we believe, I believe, right, that Samuel put this down on paper, if you will, in, in part as an apology or a defense of, King's David, of King David's right, to the throne of Israel because it goes through at the very end his, his lineage, okay? So we believe that Samuel was the one who wrote this story down during the reign of King David. So it would have been late, early, sorry, you're going backwards, it's confusing. It would have been early 900s, 980, somewhere in that time frame that Samuel penned it during that time as a defense for King's David, King David's right to the throne of of Israel. Now the setting, the setting of this story, let's go back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, now it came about in the days when the judges governed, so we've addressed the time frame of this story. Really the text addresses the time frame, right? When the judges governed. It says that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab, with his wife and his two sons. So the circumstances surrounding this story, or the beginning of this story, is that there was a, a famine in the land of Judah. And we don't know if this famine was as a result of God's judgment, 
We can go through the Old Testament and we see numerous occasions where God sends famine as a result of judgment and or discipline, right? But we don't know that because the text doesn't tell us. It's possible that it was judgment, right? I also believe that it's quite possible and probably more so plausible that God sent this famine to set this entire story into motion. Had this famine not occurred, then the preceding story, as we'll go through over the next several months, would not have occurred. And this, this story, the story of Ruth, as we, as we study it, and again, I don't want to give really any spoilers out there, but as we study it, we're going to see how God uses this family and this set of circumstances, how he uses this to in part fulfill his promise that he made all the way back in the garden, that he's made throughout the Old Testament up to this point, how he uses this to fulfill his promise of sending his Messiah. And so I believe that God orchestrated, not just used, right? But I believe that he orchestrated this famine for the purposes that this story would unfold as it would unfold. Thus, Messiah would come, right, over a thousand years later as a result of, of the circumstances and the families and the happenings of this particular story. Again, regardless as to the why or, or regardless as to the how, we, we know that these events happened according to the sovereign plan and sovereign purposes of God. And as we study this story over the next several months, we're going to see that story. We're going to see it unfold. We're going to see his providence and we're going to see his sovereignty unfold in and through this story. Now, it says that this family, right, certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of the fa- of, of sorry, sojourn in the land of Moab. So they were a sojourning family, right? That is they were making a temporary change in order to survive. This this wasn't a permanent move, but was temporary during this famine in Judah. The plan would have been to move back once circumstances changed. So this family moves from Judah, Bethlehem in Judah, to Moab during this, this famine with the intention that once this famine's over, we're going to go back home. Now, let's talk about the two places mentioned in this first birth. First birth. First verse, right? There's Bethlehem and Judah, and there's Moab. Now, Bethlehem and Judah, this family... They were Israelites, but they were Israelites from the tribe of Judah. This is significant. It's no small thing. Judah was the prominent, the dominant and prominent tribe of Israel. Judah, along with the tribes of Benjamin and Simeon, and and remember the tribes, right, get their name from where? The 12 sons of Jacob, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. And these three tribes, Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, made up the southern kingdom of Israel, right? All referred to as the kingdom of Judah. However, Judah, the tribe of Judah, was the royal tribe of Israel in the south. It was ultimately the royal tribe of Israel, period, of all the 12 tribes. And this is significant that this family is from this tribe. Now, Ultimately, this significant, the significance, sorry, from this tribe comes from the fact 
that God's Messiah would come from this tribe. If we look at the Old Testament, just concerning Israel's view of the tribe of, of, of Judah, kind of separating it momentarily from the significance that we know of, that is that Christ was from the tribe of Judah, right? We do see the significance overall in Israel for Judah. We see it in Genesis chapter 49. Um, turn there briefly. Genesis 49 verses 8 through 12. And in 49, 8 through 12, Jacob blesses specifically his son of Judah, blessing the tribe of Judah. And in 49, 8 through 12, he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. As a lion who dares rouse him up, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, and he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Verse 10. Jacob said of Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And indeed, the scepter, the rule, has not departed from the tribe of Judah because the king of kings and the Lord of lords is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And this is ultimately where the significance of Judah comes from. This is why Judah is crucial. This is why it's important, even within this story, that this family was Israelites from the tribe of Judah. If they were Israelites from the tribe of Benjamin, this story would have absolutely no messianic significance because the coming king, God's Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, right, wasn't coming from the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Gad or the tribe of Rudin or Simeon, right? He's coming from the tribe of Judah. So it's no small thing that this family, right, Israelites from the tribe of Judah, right, Living in where? Bethlehem. King David, Bethlehem. King Jesus, Bethlehem. It's no small thing that they were Israelites from Judah in Bethlehem. Now, the other place mentioned in verse 1 is the land of Moab. So this man, his family, was to sojourn from Bethlehem in Judah to Moab. Now, Moab, it's not like, and and we're going to go through and we're going to see this. It wouldn't be like, well, there's this family from Ada and they decided to move to Paul's Valley because it was, uh, they were getting more rain this summer in Paul's Valley than Ada. And so they're just going to head over to to Paul's Valley where, where they can have a little bit more, right? It's not even like, you know, um, oh, well, this family from, from Stillwater, they were going to go, go move down to Norman, right? And a little, little tension there, Stillwater, Oklahoma State, Norman, oh, you right. Oh, nobody wants to live in Norman, at least if you're an Oklahoma State fan, right? Wasn't even anything like that, okay? Moab. Historically, this country originated as a result of Lot fathering his son, Moab, through an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. Let's look at that. Let's go to Genesis chapter 19.
Genesis 19, verses 30 through 37. Lot went up from Zor, stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zor, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us um, after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And on the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, that you may go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son, And called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Moab's beginning is nothing glorious but completely debased. Now geographically, geographically Moab was actually close to to the tribe of Judah was actually close to Bethlehem. It lied about 50 miles southeast of Bethlehem, but was separated by Judah from the Dead Sea. And in order to travel to Moab, right, this man and his family would have had to travel north around the Dead Sea through the tribes of Gad and Reuben, then down in to Moab. So we have Israel over here with, with glorious beginnings in that Israel was specifically called out by God to be his, his people, right? And then over here, we've got this, this country, this nation, of, of Moab that has the completely opposite of glorious beginnings, right? But beginnings that were debaucherous and that were debased. We had this, this family that was from the tribe of, of Judah, the royal tribe of Israel, traveling from this country with glorious beginnings up and over the Dead Sea to this country with not so glorious beginnings. In fact, as I was using illustrations earlier about, you know, moving from Ada to Paul's Valley or Stillwater to Norman, right? The relationship between Israel and the relationship between Moab is not like the relationship between Ada and Paul's Valley or Stillwater and Norman. Israel, national Israel, national Moab were enemies. They were perennial enemies, right? From the beginning of Moab until, till, till the destruction of Moab, right? Though there were patterns. In fact, I was, Randy and I were talking about this, and so I thank him for the, the, the illustration or the thought. Israel's treatment of Moab, Israel's national, Israel's view of Moab is the same view that Jonah had towards Nineveh. God told Jordan to go to Nineveh, and what did he do? He went in the opposite direction. Anywhere but Nineveh. That's how Israel felt about Moab. I suspect that that's how Elimelech, this man, his family, that's how they felt about Moab. Really? We're in the middle of this famine. There's nothing here. I need to provide for my family, and I've got to take them to Moab? Really, Lord? Anywhere 
but Moab. I'll go up over to, 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 to Gad or, or up and over to Reuben. But Moab, that's how Israel viewed Moab. That was the relationship between them, right? Now, again, politically, they were enemies. Um, let's look at Numbers. Um, actually, let's not look at Numbers because it's, it's four verses or four chapters there, so I'm just going to summarize. But if you recall, Numbers 22, right? This is where Balak, the king of Moab, sends Balaam out to curse Israel. And this was hundreds of years after the, the, the man, the boy, the, the child Moab was born from this relationship, right? The king of, of Moab, Balak, sends Balaam his, I don't know what he was, a prophet, if you will, uh, uh, of, of Moab, out to curse Israel. Balak says, hey, if you curse them, they will be cursed, right? And so go out and curse my enemies, Israel. And in fact, if we recall, what does Balaam do? He comes out and he doesn't curse Israel. He blesses Israel. And of course, Balak is absolutely beside himself. And Numbers chapters 23 to 25 goes through this entire story on this interchange between um, Balak and Balaam and God concerning the blessing of Israel. But in those those chapters, we see this this picture of... um, uh, strife, if you will, between these two nations, Moab and, and Israel, okay? There was a period during the judges um, where Moab oppressed Israel. I mean, we'll look at that because it's a much smaller section of verses. We'll look at um, Judges 3. Judges 3, verses 12 through 30. <clears throat> now the sons of Israel, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and he defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. We see in 1 Samuel fourteen forty-seven that Saul defeated the Moabites. So we'll look over there. First Samuel again, 1447. And 1447 says, Now when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. So we started in Judges, this period uh, um, where uh, uh, Moab actually ruled over Israel, right? We fast-forwarded beyond the Judges into the rule of, of Saul, where he defeated the Moabites. Second Kings um, 3, 5 through 27. Again, now we're progressing in history beyond Ruth. Um, forward, Kings, uh, again, Second Kings 3, 5 through 27. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight up against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. He said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, The way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they made a circuit of seven days' journey. 
and there was no matter for the army or for the cattle that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do I have to do with you? Go to the prophet of your father and to the prophets of your mother. And the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came about when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of trenches. For thus the Lord says, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water so that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a slight thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. So we see, and I'm not going to read all the way to verse 27, but we see, right, again what? We see a, 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 a war, right, looming between Israel and Moab. And in fact, in Jeremiah 48, we're not going to turn there and read the whole chapter, but we see in Jeremiah 48, God, in fact, curses Moab as a result of their pagan worship of false gods and their opposition to God's people. So it's no small thing that this, this family, this, this remnant, right, these believers, Old Testament saints from the tribe of Judah are traveling from Bethlehem and Judah over to the country of their arch enemies, Moab. To, to provide, or this man is taking his family over there to provide for their physical needs. It's no small thing that this is happening in this way. And as, as the story unfolds through Ruth, okay, and the lineage that comes through Ruth, we're going to see why it's no small thing. Ultimately, it has to do with the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's sovereign plan of salvation. Now let's look at verse 2 of Ruth. It says, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the, name of his, the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. I'm not going to spend much time talking about um, Naomi Ruth, so we're going to spend the next several months talking about and looking at, right? But Elimelech, I want to talk about him just briefly, and then, and then we're actually going to talk about him later on as well. But Elimelech, his name means my God is king. And I believe that Elimelech, though scripture doesn't explicitly state this, okay? So I, I'm not basing this on an explicit statement in the book of Ruth or anywhere else in scripture, but I believe that Elimelech is an Old Testament saint, and that he is a, a believer, okay? Though I can't say this with certainty, I want to give you a, a, a defense of why I believe he was an Old Testament saint, okay? One, I believe his name does tell us 
something about him. And we know that a lot of times scripture will use names to tell us things about people, to tell us things about places. Again, not conclusive evidence that Elimelech was a a believer, okay? But I believe the fruit in his life or of his life points to the fact that he was an Old Testament saint. Let's think briefly about his move to Moab. What was national Israel doing at that time? They were worshiping Baal, right? And Asheroth. And they were participating in these religious, sexual, pagan, debaucherous, horrible activities, trusting in Baal and Asheroth to bring uh, um, vitality and to fertilize the land and bring vitality to the people. That's what national Israel was doing, right? It's not what Elimelech and Naomi were doing with their two sons. And what did they do? They said that God is providing, what, food in Moab. If we move to Moab, God will provide for us there as well. I'm reading into that, okay? That's what I believe that Elimelech and Naomi were doing. They were moving over here where God was providing, right? And when I read this, and when I think, actually, when I think about these first five verses in Ruth, you know where my mind goes? My mind goes directly to Joseph, Jacob, and the sons of Israel, right? You guys know that story. Love the story of Joseph. So probably Ruth is my favorite story in the Old Testament, and I would say, oh, oh the story of Joseph and, and Israel and how God used these, these horrible events in Joseph's life to sustain his, his people, right? It's my favorite story in the Old Testament as well, right? I think they're all my favorite. Um, but my mind goes there, and I think of that story, right? God sent Joseph through horrible circumstances, but God sent Joseph to Israel that years later, when there was famine in Israel, God would what? God would have Jacob send his sons to Egypt during famine that God would provide for them. And I think that's what's going on here with with Elimelech and his family in Israel and Moab. God God is sending them in this famine to Moab that he might provide for them again ultimately so that God might what? Remain faithful to his promise to send Messiah through the tribe of Judah. Well, again, we'll see that unfold as we go through this book. So I believe that Elimelech was a believer as a result of fruit in his life. I also think that um, the fruit of his family is or can be considered evidence of the fact that he was um, an Old Testament saint as well. Look at his wife. Despite her sin and sorrow that we'll see progressing through this book, even though we know God turns that sorrow to joy, right? We see the evidence in Naomi's life that she was a believer, okay? Ruth was a proselyte. She was a pagan Moabites who was converted by God's grace to be a believer. Well, how was that gospel, if you will, proclaimed to her? It was proclaimed to her through Elimelech's family. I suspect her mother-in-law, Ruth. I suspect her husband, Malon. I think that came in part probably from the legacy 
that Elimelech left with his family and how he led his family. We even see it with his, I believe, probably cousin. I think Boaz was his cousin. And as we go through the story, we'll see another family member of Elimelech's come into play. And his name is Boaz. And Boaz, again, was a part of this remnant, an Old Testament saint. So I think we see this legacy in his family to say that I think Elimelech, yeah, most likely was a believer. Again, we've got all this evidence, right, that can point to the fact that he was a believer. And with all this evidence pointing in that direction, we have nothing in Scripture that indicates or explicitly states that Boab, Boaz, sorry, that Elimelech wasn't a believer. So concerning Elimelech, and again, when we get to the end of uh, verse 5, we're going to revisit him. But concerning Elimelech, I believe that Elimelech was an Old Testament saint. And there's nothing in Scripture that indicates, I believe, otherwise that he wasn't. All right. Now, concerning his sons, I don't know. Mahlon, Ruth's husband, I think very, very, very quite possibly. Again, based on the legacy that we see in Ruth's life. But I don't know. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 of Ruth chapter 1. It says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Now again, concerning Elimelech's death, no evidence as to why he died. Maybe a rock fell on his head, or he had a heart attack, or we don't know. And and it doesn't matter as to why he died. But nonetheless, we know that he died. And it says, when he died, his two sons married Orpah and Ruth. And they were Moabite women. Ruth was married to Mahlon, so we believe, and Orpah to Kilion, right? And it's possible, well, we know for Ruth it's, it's, it's factual, but it's possible for Orpah that she was a proselyte, that is a convert, to not, not just simply Judaism, but she was a true convert, convert to the promised Messiah who would come, right? Just as we are converts, okay? But it's possible that Orpah was a proselyte, and Ruth, of course, we know for sure as we go through this story, she was a believer, old, an Old Testament saint. And then again, concerning time, it says, um, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. This was their total time in Moab. So from the very beginning of when they left Bethlehem and Judah up over the Dead Sea to Moab to the time as we'll see that they come back to Bethlehem as we progress through the story, it's approximately 10 years. Now, verse 5 says, Then both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and the woman, the woman being Naomi, she was bereft of her two children, and her husband. See, in these first five passages, we see um, Naomi experience great sorrow through the loss of her husband and her two sons. And we're going to see this sorrow continue through the text as we study it over the next several months. However, we're going to see God transform Naomi and Ruth's sorrow into joy. And we'll see him do it through physical redemption but more so spiritual redemption. The point at which Naomi experiences this loss or the point at which Ruth experiences this loss, they are, they are believers, okay? They are Old Testament saints. Saved in the same manner that we're saved, right? I mean, how is the Old Testament saved? 
just as the New Testament saint is saved, right? We look back to the cross, right? Turning from our sin, repenting from our sin. And, and in that, we do what? We turn to Christ and we trust Him. And when a person does that, God saves that person, not on the basis of, again, that person's repentance or that person's faith, but God saves that person on the basis of Christ's atoning work, his life, his death, his resurrection. Well, for Ruth and Naomi, and I believe Limelech and Boaz and the remnant of Israel, right? What were they doing? They were looking forward to the cross. Again, they didn't have all the details, not like we have the details, but they were looking forward to this Messiah that God would send to save them from their sins. So the Old Testament saints are saved in the same manner that the New Testament saints are saved. But nonetheless, through this story, Ruth and Naomi, we see this not just a a physical redemption, right? But we're going to see this spiritual redemption unfold as this sorrow in their lives is turned to joy. And then in that and through that, we're going to see this greater picture of spiritual redemption, and that'll come through an offspring, through this family's lineage, and that offspring will be Jesus. Ultimately, what we're going to see as we progress through this story, in part, we're going to see many things, but one of the things we're going to see is we're going to see Romans... 828 fulfilled in their lives. If you would turn with me to Romans 828. I know most of us know this verse. I think it's, it's one of those verses that at least I know many of us quote to one another and many times in our lives as we're struggling through things, right? In Romans 828, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those called according to his purpose. One of the exciting things as we progress through this is we're going to see this as we see their sorrow turn to joy. We're going to see God using these horrible circumstances in Moab to not just edify them personally, right, by by giving a husband, by giving an heir, right? But we're going to see... We're going to see the greatest good done in their lives. And again, that's God's faithful to his promise to send the Messiah through this, this family. And when I think of this and I think of the story that we're about to look at over the next several months, again, my mind goes back to, as I said earlier, it goes back to the story of Joseph and Joseph in Egypt and all these horrible things that happened to him. And if you recall at the end of Joseph's life, what did he say? He said, what you guys meant for evil... He said, God meant for good. What Joseph was proclaiming was proclaiming God's sovereignty, that God actually orchestrated all these events, didn't make his brothers sin. I'm not saying that, right? But God orchestrated all these events for his sovereign plan and his sovereign purposes, which was to what? Which was to bless those who were truly his children. And again, we know we can trace God's preservation of Israel in him sending Joseph to Egypt, and then him sending Jacob and the other 11 sons of, of Jacob to Egypt, right? God was doing that, again, ultimately to preserve Israel. Because why? Because his Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, would come from them, would come through them. 
And again, we're going to see that over the next several months. But before I conclude today, I want to conclude on this, I guess. I want to go back to Elimelech. I know all of this that we just kind of went through was just historical stuff, right? And as I, as I studied this this past week and as I, as I, as I thought about this text and, and the, the, the history behind all of this and what was going on, I kind of struggled with, well, what, what do we do with this text? Okay, these first five excuse me, these first five verses. I mean, it's just, it's just history. Is there anything that I can apply to my life from this? Or how, what do I apply to my life? I think there's many things we could, right? But in doing that, or in seeking to do that, my, my attention was drawn back towards Elimelech. Again, over the next several months, we're going to see Romans 8.28 lived out in the lives of Ruth, in the lives of Naomi, Okay. And before they ever died, they saw it too, right? At the end of their life, Naomi understood that, that Moab and the death of her husband was good. And the death of her sons was good because what it did in and through that family, she got to see that. And she got to see Romans 8.28, though she didn't know Romans 8.28. She knew that truth and she knew that truth because Joseph knew that truth, okay? But she got to see that lived out. But what about Elimelech? He didn't get to see that lived out, did he? He went to Moab thinking he's going to provide for his family. I got these plans. I'm going to Moab because God is blessing the land with fertility there. They're eating. So I'm going to go there, provide for my family. And then when, when all is good in Judah, we're going to go back. But it didn't work out for Elimelech as he had planned in fact, he died in Moab. And in his life, he didn't see, right, Romans 8.28 come to fruition, right? It came to fruition, okay, right? Whatever happened in Elimelech's life happened for his good, happened for one, God's glory, but happened for his good. But that doesn't mean he got to see it in this life. Now, he knows it now. There's no doubt in my mind that he, he doesn't know it now. He knows it now. But in his life, he didn't see it come to fruition. Now, that's not to say that as, as, as they were sojourning from, from Bethlehem to Moab, that's not to say that God didn't use that for his own sanctification, because he did. Okay? Again, did he see it? I don't know. But we know that God used that trial, those trials, in his life for his sanctification, right? And we know God does that, right? Thinking back to Romans, I'm sorry, Romans, thinking back to James 1, 2, right? Several, several months back when we began, actually probably over a year now, when we began James, in James chapter 1, verse 2, we see what? Let's go there real quick. Let's be reminded of this. And it's something that we, we must be reminded of. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you, can, in, um, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be what? Be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses trials for what? For our sanctification. And he does that for all believers. So he was one doing that in Elimelech's life. And so that which Elimelech was, was dealing with and was going through and traveling from Bethlehem and Moab and whatever he dealt with in Moab, God was doing for his sanctification, for his good, for God's glory, and he was doing it for his good, and then he died. Well, how was that for his good? 
I mean, really? We know, we know that one, it was for his good. Because when Elimelech died, to be what? Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know that God was sanctifying him through this process because God does that in the lives of his children as we encounter various trials. We know that when God's children are called home, they're what? They're home. And that's also for our good. To be absent from our bodies and to be present with the Lord is for our good. But in that life, again, in Moab, Elimelech didn't see the big picture. And in part, the big picture for Elimelech was this. He was saved because he was looking forward to the cross, right? Again, didn't have the full picture like we do. But nonetheless, saved, looking forward to it. And in fact, God would use Elimelech's death. He would use the death of his sons in part to bring the cross to bear. And he would do that by remaining faithful to his promise of sending the Messiah to the tribe of Judah. Again, Elimelech didn't see that, right? He sees it now. He knows it now in his life, not his death. He didn't get the big picture. But us now, looking back, and as we look back at Ruth, and as we go through Ruth, right, we get the benefit of yet again being reminded of God's faithfulness. The benefit of seeing God's providence, his provision for this family. Seeing God's sovereignty working in and through this family's life for for his glory, for their good. And the truth is, he, he does the same for us. See, every one of us, nobody's exempt. Every one of us is going to sojourn in Moab. Not like literally on the eastern side of the Dead Sea now, right? Whatever country's over there. You understand what I'm saying? Metaphorically speaking, right? Every one of us is going to spend time in Moab. We're going to be in a period and a place in our life when we're dealing with trials, as they were dealing with trials. Initially, the trial of this famine and no way to provide for his family, at least in Judah. So he had to do what he had to do. We're going, to invary, uh, we're going to encounter various trials as he encountered various trials. We're going to Moab. Some of us have been there. Some of us are there now. Some of us are going back, right? And some of us, like Ruth and Naomi, I pray all of us, like Ruth and Naomi, at various points, when we go through Moab, when we're in Moab, we're going to get to see the big picture. And it is, it's exciting when we get to do that. And, and I think it is because it brings God glory. When we get to say, man, you know, I was going through this period of my life and, and it was horrible and this was happening and that was happening and from the world standards, it was all bad and I thought it was all bad. And now looking back, seeing how God brought us out of that, man, I can't do anything but praise him and honor him and give him glory because I got to see how he was working in that. So we're going to be in Moab and God's going to bring us out of Moab and we're going to get to, get to see the fruit of that. But then there's going to be times and there's going to be some of us that are going to be in Moab. And, and maybe literally, maybe um, 
not so literally. We're going to die in Moab like Elimelech died in Moab. And we're not going to get to see the fruit of God's promises in our lives. But it doesn't make it nonetheless true. See, we don't, we don't in this life, we don't have to see the big picture for God to be glorified. We don't have to see the big picture even for us to be edified. But it doesn't make it not true. And I think sometimes we, we want that and we expect that. And if we don't see that, we don't think it's true. I praise God for, for those times when we get those glimpses and we get to see the wheel come full circle, right? We can say, ah, now I see how that was for his glory and for my good, right? But, but we're not guaranteed that. Elimelech, he didn't get to see it. Ruth and Naomi did. We might get to see it. We might not get to see it. But nonetheless, God is faithful. And we're going to see his faithfulness as we, as we progress through Ruth. We're going to see his providence. We're going to see his sovereignty, okay? God cared deeply about Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. God cared deeply about this remnant. And we get to see that in this story. And the same God that cared deeply about them and worked intimately in their lives is the same God that cares deeply about us and will work intimately in our lives. And so when we find ourselves in Moab, right, God has blessed us with this incredible story of Ruth that we can go to and we can be encouraged knowing that the sovereign God in this and that the sovereign God over this is the same sovereign God over my life personally and intimately. The same sovereign God over your life personally and intimately. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Ruth. (laughs) I thank you for this awesome, this awesome story that you have given us, this, this true story that you have given us that so clearly proclaims your providence, so clearly proclaims your sovereignty. Jesus, that proclaims you. And, and I can't wait to get to these points in the text that it so clearly points, Jesus, to you. And we can see how you were working in and through this family to bring your promises to pass. Not just your promises for them individually and personally, but Lord, your promises to send the Messiah who has saved me and who has saved us, those of us in here who are saved and those of us whom you will save. And God, that, oh, it excites me so. And I just can't wait to proclaim it. Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Lord, I pray you would continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. Let us be encouraged as we study Ruth, as we find ourselves like Elimelech, as we find ourselves in, in Moab. Lord, let us be encouraged. Let us 
trust in you, the sovereign God of all creation, who we know causes all things to work together for the good, Lord, of those of us who love you and who are called according to your purposes. Jesus, there is no hope in anything or in anyone other than you. Let us constantly, consistently, not only find our hope in you, Jesus, but proclaim our hope in you that you may call many to salvation. You would sanctify many as a result. Lord, we love you. I love you, and I praise you, and I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for what you're doing. And Lord, I thank you for what you're going to do, even though I might not ever see it in this life. I nonetheless, Lord, I praise you for how you are going to work. I love you, Jesus, and I thank you. Amen.
Rock.